Let's pray together for a moment before we um, uh, unpack those verses. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray that as you speak, our hearts and minds would be open and attentive to hear your voice. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're back in Romans, Romans chapter 3 and from verse 21. And we're thinking about... What is so amazing about grace and so amazing about what God has done for us. So having uh, spelt out the bad news, uh, Paul begins with this uh, wonderful but. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made to which the law and the prophets testify. So this, this righteousness from God, it's not a novelty. Uh, remember that uh, in the church in Rome, there's a whole mix of people. There are, uh, there are Jews, there are Gentiles, there are slaves, there are free people. Uh, remember the Jews have been expelled from Rome for a while. And in AD 54, they're allowed to come back into, uh, into Rome. So Jewish Christians are coming back into Rome and they're now mixing in the church with Gentile Christians. So there are all sorts of different kind of relationships going on. And uh, one of the things that Paul is at pains to emphasise is that this idea of being saved by faith is not a novelty. Because the Jewish Christians have spent their whole lives up until this moment where they've come to faith in Christ, believing that righteousness comes through obedience to Torah, comes through obedience to the law. So Paul has to spell out to them, no, this is not, this is not a novel thing. This is an ancient thing. Salvation by faith is in the law and the prophets, which is why later on he goes to talk on about Abraham and Abraham's faith. And we'll come back to that later if we have time. We will have time. Uh, don't panic. So um, he says, this is not a novelty. There is a righteousness from God. Verse 22, this righteousness from God. So this is God's possession. Righteousness is the characteristic of God. Holiness, perfection, without blemish. This is what God is like. Righteousness is his possession. What does Paul say? Righteousness of God comes to all who believe. Righteousness comes to all who believe. This is the most, um, it's the most extraordinary thing that the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the perfectionness of God, we can have it simply by believing. Simply by believing. He'll go on to talk about by faith, by faith, by faith. Simply by believing, we can have this Perfection. This is why Christianity is so different from any other religion. Every other religion, you have to work. You have to work for this righteousness. And there's constant uncertainty because you never know whether or not you may have done enough. Or it may take, you know, uh, you know endless uh, reincarnations in order to work your way to... To those who believe, uh, John, John's gospel, John in uh, John chapter one, verse 12, he said to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It is as simple and as easy as that. This righteousness from God becomes ours simply by believing. We don't have to work for it by believing. But. What's the middle bit? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It comes through faith in Jesus. How is it that God, who is righteous, can look on us who are unrighteous and unholy and who, who fall short of his glory and just say, you're righteous? 
How, how, how can he do that? I know he's God, he can do anything. But how can, he, how can he do that? How can he just look at us and say, in all our unrighteousness and unholiness, just say, you're righteous. I was thinking about this on um, Wednesday. I don't know if you were following the news this week and the, um, the government's latest attempt to get its um, uh, plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. And uh, if you're following the news, uh, the Supreme Court... Uh, said it's not legal and just put the whole thing through the shredder and said, uh, actually, we don't think it is safe to send or it might not be safe to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. And then um, at five o'clock, uh, the prime minister popped up in a news conference and he said, um, well, we're going to pass a law to say that it is safe. We can't just do that. <laughs> you can't just, you just, it's like saying two and two equals four, but we're going to pass a law to say that two plus two equals five. You can't just pass a law to say something isn't what it is unless circumstances have changed. So, so the Prime Minister got up and said, we're going to pass a law and say, it is safe. And the lawyers are all scratching their heads to say, yeah, but unless there's evidence that that's actually the case, you can't just pass a law. You can't just do that. So how is it that God can look on us and say, well, you're righteous? How does that happen? Something has to change in the circumstances. And that's what God has done in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the third person of the Trinity, the uh, second person of the Trinity, the son, is made flesh. Was made flesh and made his home in our midst. It's through faith in Jesus and what he has done. And Paul spells out three ways in which, because of Jesus Christ, circumstances have changed. Jesus lived the life that we were always meant to live. He lived the perfect human life. And because of that, he was able to do things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. So what is it that Jesus has done? This is the good news. This is what we need to get our head around. First of all, verse 24, he says, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So first thing to think about is we have been redeemed. Remember, we're in Rome. A third of the population of Rome are slaves. Uh, Two thirds are free, a third are slaves. If you're free, the last thing you want is to become a slave. If you're a slave, the thing you most want is to become free. So that's the context. A third of the people are slaves. And so people are familiar with slaves being sold in the marketplace. Uh, Often people would be captured in war They'd be brought into Rome, women, children and men. They'd be taken to the marketplace and they would be sold as a commodity. And there was nothing you could do about that. Uh, If you, um, apparently there was a system where if a slave had a, was wearing a cap, uh, that meant no refunds. So uh, you couldn't return them. If they were wearing a cap, then you were taking, you were taking a risk. You know, it was a commodity. There was no, no right to return. Uh, that, was, that was how it was. Your only hope for, for freedom was if someone would redeem you. If someone would pay the asking price and set you free. If someone was willing to do that. Occasionally that might happen. It's a very rare thing that that would happen. But occasionally it would be. Uh, that was the only way. And that's the picture. It's the picture of the marketplace of someone coming in and paying a price for you so that you could be redeemed. And that's what God is saying Paul is saying God has done in Jesus Christ is he paid the price. 
On the cross, he paid the price. We couldn't pay it for ourselves. I was, um, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about the hundreds of thousands of people who are in bonded slavery in countries around the world, uh, people that I visited and, and have no hope of being freed from that life of bonded slavery unless uh, someone will pay, uh, pay their debt for them. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's paid, he's paid our debt. He's paid the price. We couldn't pay it for ourselves. That's the first picture that Paul uses. We've been justified freely by his grace through the redemption on the cross, Jesus paid the price that we couldn't pay for ourselves. Then verse 25, the second picture, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. A sacrifice of atonement. Now this is mind-blowing. Because in Rome, there is a temple on every street corner. And... Uh, in every temple, there's a different God who needs to be worshipped and appeased. And what you do in order to uh, uh, get the favour of that particular God or to uh, um, dissuade their wrath is you offer a sacrifice. And if you offer a sacrifice, then you'll be OK. And that's it's a continual process. If you offer a sacrifice to the so-called gods in order to live a good life. But what does Paul say? God presented Jesus as a sacrifice. This is a God who doesn't expect sacrifices from us. This is a God who offers himself as a sacrifice in order to do something for us. It's the most um, upside down way of looking at things. You can imagine the, uh, these, these dear folk in the church at Rome scratching their heads, trying to, get their, trying to get their head around this. These Gentile Christians who've been used all their lives to offering sacrifices to the gods, who are now being told there's one God, and that God has offered a sacrifice for you because he loves you so much. Now, the Jewish Christians would have been very familiar with the, the Old Testament system of sacrifice in the temple, uh, where in the, the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where God's presence resided, uh, where no one was allowed to enter apart from the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies in order to offer a sacrifice, uh, to ask for forgiveness for the sins of the nation. And what was it in the Holy of Holies was simply the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets that... Uh, God had inscribed the Ten Commandments and over the top of the, uh, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant were the two cherubim. And the top of the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the high priest would enter in with the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. It was a foretaste of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. It was a foretaste of the blood that Jesus would shed as the once and for all sacrifice. But it was in that offering of blood once a year that the sins of the nation could be forgiven. And so the Jewish Christians are sat there with this image in their mind. And Paul is saying Jesus' blood shed on the cross was the full and final and once and for all sacrifice. Which means no more sacrifices need to be offered. It's all done. That's why Jesus on the cross said, it's finished. It's done. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. He 
He died in our place. He went to the cross so that we don't have to. So the first image is from the marketplace and the slaves being redeemed. The second image is from the temple and a sacrifice being offered. And the third one is from the law court. Uh, Last part of verse 25. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There is a, you know, if you break the law, uh, there is a penalty that has to be paid. And you can't go free until the penalty has been paid. And our sin leaves us with a penalty uh, that we can't pay. It's an unpayable debt. We can't pay it on our own. But on the cross, Jesus pays it for us. It's like the judge stepping down from his judge's seat and paying the penalty, paying the fine that has to be paid. Let me just read um, a short extract from uh, uh, Dane Ortland's book, Deeper, where he... He talks about what it means to be justified, what it means to be set free in this way and how hard we find it to get our heads around the idea of being justified. This is what he writes. He says, justification is outside in, in a sense that we are justified by by being given a right standing that comes to us from wholly outside us. The very notion of a person's standing, an assessment of whether someone is guilty or innocent, universally depends on his or her own performance. Yet in the gospel, we are given what the reformers called an alien righteousness, because the record of Jesus is given to us. In what Luther called the happy exchange, we are given Christ's righteous record And he takes our sin-ridden record. Accordingly, we are treated as innocent and Christ was treated as guilty, bearing our punishment on the cross. We are thus justified, declared faultless with respect to our legal standing. Despite being the offending parties, despite having no case to make out on our behalf based on our own merits, we are free to leave the courtroom and no one can ever accuse us again and this justifying verdict is something we can receive only by acknowledging that we don't deserve it and asking for Christ's record to stand in for ours it's not the most glorious the most wonderful good news uh, i was just i was listening to um uh, Julio uh, Abraham's um, talk the other a couple of Sundays ago, and um, uh, I remember him, um, he just made a comment about uh, how different it was preaching to your British audience, uh, because you don't get so many uh, amen and hallelujahs, and um, this uh, being justified, this deserves an amen and a hallelujah, if nothing else does, the fact that we are, by faith in Christ, uh, we are, we're set free. Thank you. That was a very British hallelujah. Hallelujah. I like that. (laughs) 
but it is the most. And um, the thing is, we find it so hard to get our heads around. That's the thing. Dane Ortland goes on to say, we resist this through and through. Accepting this state of affairs strikes at our most deeply entrenched intuitions about the way the world works. We resist it, not merely because it strikes at our pride, though that is true. More deeply, it seems to throw off our moral compass about who we are and how we can feel stable about our place in the universe. The Bible's teaching on justification by faith feels like a moral vertigo, as if up is down and down is up. For we are being told to stop doing what is our inveterate inclination, to look inside to answer the questions, am I okay, do I matter, what is the verdict over my life? Am I at peace with our maker? It's, it's outside in. That's the good news that Paul is writing about. And it's the most glorious news. So, he, so verse 27, he says, where there is, is boasting. How can you boast? How can you boast about something you've done nothing to deserve? How can you boast about something you haven't earned? He goes on to say, well, you, you can't. There is no boasting. Then verse 29, he goes on to say, there is only one God. The God of the Jews is the God of the Gentiles, which is my salvation for everyone is by faith, which is why he goes on uh, to talk about uh, Abraham. And just a couple of things to say about Abraham. Uh, Abraham is justified by his faith in God. Abraham is not justified by law. He's justified by faith. And it's really important for Paul to spell that out to his Jewish listeners because they are, they are convinced that righteousness comes from the law. It comes from Torah. Uh, even today, um, Orthodox Jews in Israel are exempted from, from conscription in order that they can, they can study Torah because it's so important. Because righteousness comes through understanding Torah, understanding God's law. What Paul says is, no, it's all by faith. It's like um, the, 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 the rabbit hole that we can go down is thinking that obedience to the law is what will save us. Obedience to the law will not save us. It's like, um, you know, if, if you set off on a journey... Uh, say you want to drive to Edinburgh, Edinburgh is your destination, uh, the highway code will help you get there safely. The highway code is not your destination. Uh, the law that God gives us is our highway code. The Ten Commandments that God gave to the people in the Old Testament was their, it was their highway code to enable them to travel safely to Jesus. Uh, it's Jesus that saves not the law. And so Paul goes to, he's at pains to point out when God spoke to Abraham and said, I want you to leave your country and travel 900 miles to a country you've never heard of and make your home amongst the people that you've never heard of. And I will give you all of that land. Uh, and Abraham says, I trust you. I believe you. In that moment, he finds his righteousness. It's by faith. And then when um, he arrives and, and God says to him, well, you're going to be the father of many nations. And as we read this morning, um, uh, Abraham looks at his own body and he looks at his wife's body and he thinks, not looking likely, but I'll believe you. Again, it's by faith. It's all by faith. And the thing is this, because Abraham is willing to trust God, 
He lives the most extraordinary life and takes the most extraordinary risks and does the most bonkers things because of the fact that he trusts God. And when, if God says, this is what's going to happen, Abraham says, I believe you. Even when he has his son Isaac and God says, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son. Well, how does that compute with God saying to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. How does that work if I'm going to kill the one son that I have? But Abraham believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. And so there's the implication for us is if we truly understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross, if we truly understand the good news of redemption, the fact that we are set free by faith alone, how is that playing out in the lives that we live? Are we living lives of adventure, faith adventure? Are we living lives in which we take risks for God? Are we living lives in which we do things which the world would consider bonkers? Are we stepping out in faith based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? Or are we living uh, quiet, uh, controlled, comfortable lives? Abraham lived a life of risk and adventure because he trusted in God. And the implication surely for us as we trust in what God has done for us in his son Jesus is that we, we should be living lives of, of risk and adventure. Uh, are we doing so? I don't, I don't think I am. I'm trying, to, um, I'm trying to take more risks. When I get those little nudges from the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to act on them rather than rationalise them away, which I'm very quick to do so I've um I'll be honest with you I'm not very good but I'm trying to act in the moment and in the impulse I was um, talking to someone the other day and I just had this little nudge that I should pray with them and normally often what happens is I have that little nudge and then I and then I wait if I wait a bit too long and I start to think of all the reasons why I shouldn't do that and how foolish I might look and uh, what their reaction might be. Uh, so I'm trying to jump in on the nudge before I rationalise it away. And um, I want to live a, a life of greater risk and greater adventure. Because Jesus has done the most extraordinary thing for me. I was dead in my sins and he raised me to life. And that's the glorious good news. And uh, that's where we're at this morning. And that's what I wanted to, I wanted to celebrate, which is why we've kind of done things... Uh, topsy-turvy this morning because uh, I want to spend some time allowing us to just respond to what God has done for us in Jesus and to respond in sung worship and just to be reminded of uh, what God has done and to respond to that. So what we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to move into a time of, of prayer and worship and then that is going to morph seamlessly into sharing in communion. So uh, 